0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with musicologist Dr David Larkin. David is a senior lecturer at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and he joined me to discuss how music can powerfully represent and evoke nature as well as the sublime. With an upcoming performance by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, David Larkin and I explore in-depth Richard Strauss's An Alpine Symphony. This single-movement epic tone poem is a perfect example of how music can evoke nature. David shares how Strauss depicts a waterfall, a flowery meadow with cows, a sunrise, a thunderstorm, a hiker reaching an alpine summit, and an experience of the sublime, as well as many other things. He uses music as a language to communicate this and evoke emotions in the listener. If you would like to listen to this interview with the music included, please see the link in the please see the link in the podcast text description. Please see the link in the podcast description which will take you to the Triple R website with this particular interview featured including the music. If you'd like to play along at home and stream the music for yourself, please also see the podcast description for the track list and listen carefully to the interview as I share which tracks we're playing and at which point. Thanks for listening. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome a guest onto the show who I've not yet had the pleasure of meeting, but I can't wait to chat about his passion for Richard Strauss and all things 19th century German music and a whole lot more. We are going to be talking about a particular piece of music called an Alpine Symphony. That's the English title of it. In German, it kind of looks similar or sounds similar, but it's Ein Alpen Symphony. This particular piece is going to be showcased by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra once again on March the 2nd and March the 3rd at Hamer Hall. And I was fortunate enough to see it. 2016 and 2020 when they last played it it truly is one of those ones you don't want to miss out on you have to experience it at least once in your life but i think once you go you'll want to go again so i hope that you avail yourself of the opportunity to hear it live but we are going to play some tracks from it and also talk about it in the context of exploring the idea of music and its power and ability to evoke nature and other things like the sublime so Without further ado, I welcome onto the program Dr. David Larkin, who is a Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. Hi there, David, and thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi, Amy, and thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk with you, and you have actually not only written a conversation article about this very excellent piece of music, but you've also written a journal article from last year called What the Climber Saw, Strauss's Alpen Symphony and the Romantic Tradition of Nature Representation. So those who are so inclined, you should look it up. It's in 19th Century Music Review, It is actually an excellent piece, so I'm so glad that you shared it with me, David. But we are going to start out this conversation by not talking and actually listening to the music, because I thought that's going to speak for itself, and then we can start to refer to some parts that we've heard. So I'm going to play a combined part, so the first section and the second section, Night and Sunrise. I've combined them together. I do want to warn anyone who's driving at the moment that there's a very, very quiet and soft start to this piece. And then there will be a very big kind of bang where it all explodes into beautiful pictures in your mind and in your ears. So I'm going to make sure I turn it down when it does the big bang, but just be aware that that's going to happen. Just be mindful of that. But this is from Richard Strauss's Alpine Symphony. It's the first two parts, not movements, but sections, because this is a one movement piece. I hope you enjoy this This is a particularly interesting interpretation too, which we'll talk about after this. That was the first two sections of An Alpine Symphony by Richard (coughs) Strauss. We are talking to Dr. David Larkin from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. He is a musicologist, which sounds like a brilliant job. It also sounds like it spans a whole range of fields and is very interdisciplinary based on what I read from his journal article. David, could you talk us through what we just heard The first two sections, which were called Night and Sunrise, and really overall what Richard Strauss was trying to do with what is called a tone poem.
1: Excellent. So um, this piece is effectively um, about a 50 to 55 minute long single movement orchestral work, which is intended explicitly to depict aspects of nature. So what Strauss has done is he has created a scenario which basically describes a kind of dawn to dusk, day in the mountains. And what we were experiencing at the very beginning is the nightfall. So you can hear the very sort of um, subdued sounds, a kind of mistiness, quietness. And then, of course, the crescendo and the sudden burst of sunlight, um, which represents the, the dawn moment itself. Interestingly, it wasn't the first time in his tone poems that Strauss had represented this moment of sunrise. Perhaps even more famous to to listeners will be the beginning of Also Spracht Zarathustra, which is, of course, used at the beginning of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which again represents the sudden burst of light. So that's what Strauss was trying to do at these beginning sections. More generally, um, Strauss loved this programmatic idea, the idea that music had to have a poetic idea behind it, um, that it wasn't just music for its own sake, but that it should represent something. That drove him from the late 1880s up until this piece. And Alpine Symphony, just in terms of his career, comes as the final of the nine tone poems that he has written. It is the longest, and in some ways at the time, it was the most controversial.
0: Yes, and when this was written and performed, it was in a certain time of political and social upheaval and tumult in the early 20th century, not only before he was writing it before World War One, but also around World War One.
1: Yeah, its first performance happened in 1915. So the war was very much ongoing at this point, and he finished its composition during the um, the early months of the World War. But in fact, as you said, um, it, it began life as a very different project. It was called supposed to be called an art this tragedy. And he began that as early as, I think, 1899 or around 1900. And he dropped it and took it up again and left it in, in, um, in abeyance for quite some time. But it wasn't until 1911 that he really began work on it, I think, in a serious fashion. And that was occasioned by the death of his friendly rival, I think would be a good way of putting it, <laughs> Gustav Mahler. So at the death of Mahler, he writes a very famous entry in his little diary where he says, Mahler went to Christianity. I don't believe in Christianity. I'm going to call my Alpine symphony the Antichrist because it represents values that he saw as being antithetical to Christianity. Now, it was probably good marketing at the time that he didn't decide to call it the Antichrist. But nonetheless, um, it shows that it, it, it very much has a link to Nietzsche's work of this particular designation. So therefore, when you're thinking about the Alpine Symphony, we will, as I'm sure our discussion will demonstrate, it's more than just a nature piece, but it is Mm. a nature piece first and foremost.
0: Indeed, yeah. And I know that apparently, according to perhaps folklore, I'm not sure, that Strauss boasted around the time he was writing this symphony that he could, if necessary, describe a knife and fork in music. Uh, So confident was he of his ability to evoke certain things. It was really interesting to me to see in your piece, you actually wrote in one of your footnotes that there's an image of him standing in front of a mountain, an alpine mountain, and it seems like he did engage in mountain trips and hiking as a child. And I found an interesting quote from a reflection that he had about a trip that he took across a mountain when he was 14 years old in 1878. He wrote Already on the way there, we were hit by a terrible storm. The next day, I portrayed the entire ordeal on the piano. Some people might say that that was part of the inspiration, but I also wonder what were some of the other parts of why he chose an alpine setting and also the the insertion of a human into that story as well, because that is quite a difference between his work and, as you've pointed out in your work, those like Beethoven and his Pastoral Symphony, which is not really human-centred.
1: Absolutely. So, yes, you're right. He had this childhood experience where he was caught in a storm. And the next day, he says, yes, he improvised on the piano. Naturally, smarminess a la Wagner is what he said at the time, (laughs) because he wasn't a fan of Wagner. At least he was only coming around to it. In the um, years before, probably about a decade before um, Alpine Symphony was was completed, um, he had been at least living part of the year in southern Germany, in the Bavarian Alps, in a place called Garmisch-Partenkirchen. So he had built himself a villa there, and there are plenty of photographs of him going for walks around these Alpine regions. So he really knew them from the inside, if you like. He he really knew them as as an experienced hiker. The reason I think that he would also have been attracted to mountains specifically, because there are plenty of beautiful scenes there, um, is the fact that mountains had a significance for Nietzsche, who was an important influence on Strauss. So Nietzsche saw the mountain as a place of enlightenment, and I I mean that in a very much not religious sense, that the mountain was a place where you could um, discover yourself. So um, in Thus Beg Zarathustra, he has his um, titular character go up the mountain and effectively sort of found um, um, a a new religion, you might almost call it and a religion which is preaching be faithful to the earth. So there were plenty of reasons both immediate in Strauss's environment and in his intellectual hinterground that might have driven him to to compose this complex multifarious work.
0: Yeah. And when we're also thinking about how this piece was received over time, I know that in more recent years, it's become very popular and you can tell because the MSO is bringing it back every three or four years and I go every time, you know, but at the start and even later on, there seems to have been a mixed response because some people might not be happy or appreciative of the idea of music trying to so quote unquote literally evoke something. I don't think it's literal personally, but everyone has their own subjective view. And I wondered if you could Tell us a little bit about its critical reception, not only when Strauss premiered it, but also across time.
1: Absolutely. So um, when it appeared, Strauss had been doing this for at least 25 years at this point. So he was well known for his programmatic works and he had been shocking and thrilling audiences through the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century. However, when Alpine Symphony came out, I think that the heyday of that programmatic orchestral composition had passed. There was a sense in which it was a little bit backward-looking compared to what it had been, for example, in the 1890s, and other people were kind of doing more extreme things. There were some um, pretty choice remarks when it was performed in England. I dug one out for for this programme. Someone said, and he's talking about here the guidebooks by a man called Baedeker. He says, When the German soul grappled with the cosmic profundities of portentous cowbells and erected a monument to Baedeker in rather flatulent sound. So there's a sense in which it might seem a bit overblown. It has one of the largest orchestras ever required for a piece up till that particular point. Like there's over a hundred players are needed to play it. And after like people wrote it off as just tone painting in the most literal sense. The word, and I agree with you, it's not just that. Then, people, uh, critics, um, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, rediscovered or reappreciated how much Strauss had been in- influenced by Nietzsche and how Strauss was far more than just the slightly Bavarian buffoon that he sometimes came across. And they re-read the Alpine Symphony as Strauss engaging quite seriously with some Nietzschean ideas, and that's very definitely another layer to the the tone poem. I have my own views as to um, another, I get a third reading that can be put forward, but we might get to that later.
0: Well, let's jump into another section. This comes after the sections we've just heard. It's called Der Anstieg, and that's The Ascent. Could you give us just a little 30 second idea of what we should be listening for in this piece?
1: Okay, so in this particular moment, up till now, um, we've heard effectively the sounds or a representation of nature. Here we turn to the human, to the protagonist, if you like Strauss himself, or just an unnamed protagonist. Um, And this character is launched off with a kind of heroic theme in the cellos and lower strings, uh, and then it works its way up. And this theme itself is related to a theme from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, from the fourth movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. There's a rather nice detail after it launches quite stridently, then there's a bit where it loses tempo. And in one of Strauss's sketchbooks, he said, this is where the climber is set off too quickly and sort of is already getting a bit puffed. So rather <laughs> nice little details brought into this from a very experienced climber.
0: Oh, I love that. OK, we're going to hear from De Anstieg, The Ascent. This is Richard Strauss, An Alpine Symphony. And we were just listening to a fantastic section of an Alpine Symphony, the third section, which is The Ascent Up the Mountain by this hiker. It is by Richard Strauss, and that particular recording was from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Andrew Davis when he was conducting the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and it was released in 2018. The first conductor we heard earlier was Georg Salty with a much faster, more brisk pace, and you certainly would be able to tell the difference between the two recordings in that particular piece because obviously the strides are so clear in the the music i wonder david could you explain to us the late motifs that are throughout that piece and how strauss manages to interweave them and modify them in later sections to represent the human
1: Absolutely. So, the uh, climber theme um, recurs many times throughout the piece. So, effectively, as we go through different scenes, he will represent aspects of the scene, and then you will have effectively, by various means, but including this theme, you'll have the climber's response to it. So, for example, the very next thing that would follow on the excerpt that just finished there is called entry into the wood. So, what we have is a much a sudden darkening of, of, of the, the sound, and it feels like it's a much scarier place. And then we hear little hints of the climber theme, but they are in the minor key at this particular point. So effectively implying that his spirit has been darkened. Another very famous moment much later in the piece is um, during the storm. So once the storm breaks, then of course the climber wants to descend. And Strauss very ingeniously takes the climber theme, which as you might have heard was an ascending theme for the most part and turns it upside down. So again, this time it's the climber going downwards. So that, that by doing that, we constantly get a reference for the human within these particular nature scenes. He also uses one other theme that becomes quite important, particularly at the top. And that's a theme that he allegedly took from Bruch's Violin Concerto Number 1. And it's a very simple one. It goes, da-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum, and then Strauss soups it up in, in, in very exciting ways. And apparently, again, according to his sketchbooks, This represents how beautiful, wie schön. So it is effectively a moment where the climber is particularly struck Mm. by the beauty of the scene or the um, excitement that he's just experienced.
0: It's funny because that's exactly what I saw in my mind's eye when I first listened to it and I had no idea of the background. So... In that way, he must have done an amazing job that someone like me, who didn't know about his Alpine Symphony before, could have understood that. It's that kind of language that's so interesting, music, and how it can be so universal.
1: Absolutely. Again, you know, we, we, we I spend a lot of time studying and trying to work out the finer details of what he was intended. But, of course, that's A, not what people will always pick up, and B, maybe that doesn't always matter. But more importantly, he does... Use the emotional language of music very clearly. So even if one doesn't know for sure what his intention was, one can definitely appreciate the overall ambience that he was trying to create.
0: Yeah, the feeling. We'll get to that in just a minute when we'll play On the Summit, but I did want to play some very short clips which give us an idea of some of the natural elements that he's referencing, like the waterfall and also the mountain pasture. So we're going to jump into waterfall. I don't think I need to explain it. And I'm sure you probably don't either, because I feel like this one's pretty obvious. So let's just listen to it and come back. We just heard section six and seven at the waterfall and apparition. Now, as I said, it sounds pretty obvious. I could hear the waterfall there. I'm sure you could have, David. But what were we hearing there as well?
1: So you have strauss using his amazing skill and his amazing instrumental knowledge to create this analogy for flowing and falling water. In this, he's following on a a rich tradition within Western art music. Um, In piano, you've got people like Liszt and Ravel. And then, of course, in orchestration, you've got someone like Respighi, who I think comes a little bit after Strauss. So that's very straightforward. But then what comes afterwards is that one of the more enigmatic section titles, it's called Erscheinung, which means apparition. So again, if you look at the sketchbooks, because he doesn't tell us this, anywhere else officially he even writes the word alpine fairy so nobody really knows what that's about there maybe it's almost like as if you look at a waterfall the iridescent colors gives mm. the climber this sense of maybe a little apparition appearing and um, the shadows perhaps in the, in the sunlight and um, who can actually say but nonetheless the texture of the waterfall clearly continues while that melody is being played as well
0: mm. yeah i can see that that's beautiful We'll jump into something on a very similar theme, which is just a little bit later, we'll skip in flowery meadows and head to on the mountain pasture, because this is the part where we hear the cowbells that you referenced earlier on. Is there anything we should know about this one before we
1: jump into it? Um, this particular one is one of the most naturalistic, I would say as well. So again, um, I've actually done some walking in the um, in the um, Bavarian Alps, just to retrace the steps of my musical hero. And um, you can definitely hear the cowbells um, if, if you're anywhere near a herd there so what you have very clearly at this point is naturalistic cow sounds and then a warm string response which I think I'm right in interpreting as the climber sort of like his human perspective and then we go back to the natural sounds themselves.
0: Perfect let's hear on the mountain pasture which is after Alm. We just heard there the section called On the Mountain Pasture. We did certainly hear cowbells, but we also heard some very funny, slightly discordant sounding, wavering noises. Could you tell us what that is and what instrument and also some of the other interesting and very different instruments Strauss is employing in Alpine Symphony?
1: So in that section we just heard, we had clearly birdsong, which we didn't mention before. So that was some of the high woodwind, but perhaps more interesting indeed were those buzzing sounds. So that's a special effect that you can get on wind and brass instruments. It's called flutter tonguing. And again, it's not the first time Strauss has used this. He used it in one of his earlier works called Don Quixote. And in that piece, it represents the sheep bleating. So again, you can see how he's reusing that same effect for an alpine pasture. The other thing just to mention about the use of the cowbells, This could be a tribute that Strauss is making to his deceased friend and rival, Mahler, because Mahler famously used cowbells, for example, in his sixth symphony. Now, beyond this particular section, of course, Strauss is using, as I said, an enormous orchestra. And the battery of percussion instruments that he used just has to be heard to be um, appreciated. So we have got um, a wind machine and a thunder machine. They're going to come in later when we listen to the storm. Um, You've got the glockenspiel, cymbals, large drum, small drum, triangle, cowbells, and tam-tam, in other words, the gong. So, as well as two players on the timpani and the celeste and an organ. So that's an aside from an enormous complement of strings, winds and brass. And you can just appreciate what a huge variety of sonic effects are possible with all these forces. Mm,
0: And something called a hecklephone.
1: A hecklephone, yes. So that's kind of like an alto oboe. I remember talking to one of the SSO players, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra players. And I think she said, oh my God, it's one of the most horrible things to play because it's (laughs) very hard to deal with its tuning and its problems there. So there may be some alternatives that people can come up with as well, nowadays. Right.
0: Well, I want to jump to something that is particularly epic, and you've already referenced it a bit earlier this beautiful oboe solo. But it's a whole lot more than that. It's the 13th section, Alphdem Gipfel, on the summit, where presumably the hiker has reached the summit, has seen this beautiful view on the peak of the mountain looking out across the Alps. And it does feel like you're there with them taking in this beautiful scene and enveloped by this very warm, beautiful music. Could you tell us just a tiny bit about what we're going to hear?
1: Sure, so he gets there after a bit of difficulty. So the previous sections have been things like called dangerous moments and on the glacier. So when he gets to the top, He's not, if you like, fully ready for an appreciative moment. I think he Mm -hmm. needs to recover himself. And that's what I think the oboe passage represents. You know, you're just arriving there, you're resettling yourself, you're breathing again. And then gradually, his eyes get drawn out to the scene that surrounds him. And then the how beautiful theme that I mentioned earlier is heard. And you also get um, a a reference back to Alzo Spracht Zarathustra, the nature motif. So that's just a dumb bum, bum. That particular figure is heard several times. Times as well. And then it moves into this magnificent passage, around about four minutes or so in length, of just sheer orchestral plenitude. You get gorgeous, rich, lyrical, romantic sounds. Given when it was premiered in 1915, this passage for me has always felt like oh, this is the last gasp of the 19th century, this hmm. monumental style that would be so unfashionable after the First World War was over. So it's a moment to be just savoured. And as I say, I think this represents the encounter of the the climber with the sublime of the landscape from this elevated place.
0: Excellent. Well, here we have Alfdam Gipfel on the summit. Did you want to say anything else about what we've just been listening to?
1: No, I think the um, the, the the thunderstorm um, emerges after another couple of sections where we're not exactly certain what his purpose is. For example, he has a section called Vision. No explanation anywhere that I've found about what the vision is. And then another one where it has, uh, again, a slightly um, puzzling title, Elegy. Mm. So there's a clear sadness to the music. Again, I'm not quite sure what he's sad about. Maybe, and this is where I explore in my article, in other words, if this climber is effectively living in a a desacralized world, maybe it's a kind of a regret for what has been lost, this sense of the numinous, this sense of a transcendent other. And again, I know that Strauss very much didn't believe in in the idea of the transcendent other, but it doesn't necessarily mean, just as Nietzsche predicted, that he was happy with it all the time, with that new perspective that he had.
0: And should we just mention here what the sublime means?
1: Right. And the sublime is one of those categories. It's a, a romantic category. And effectively, it is a mixture of, I suppose, fear, terror and pleasure. So the feeling if you're lying on your back, looking up at the sky and you see the stars and you're suddenly struck by the immensity of the sky and how small you are, that kind of vertiginous feeling you get that is part pleasure but also part terror, that would be an example of the sublime.
0: Let's hear a little part of the thunder section, which is called Gewitter und Strom, Abstieg, Thunder and Storm Descent. We won't get to hear all of it, but just a little bit here. David, we've just heard some wind and thunder machines, among many other things. How does Strauss finish this Alpine symphony?
1: Well, he finishes back where he starts. So in the end, the last section is night returns. So we've we've gone through the whole day span and the whole day in the mountains. The climber we have to infer is safely down. And there's a, a section towards the, the second last section is called after echo, ausklang. And you get the organ coming in in a very sentimental and beautiful fashion. So you could imagine this as the climber's feelings of having been through this amazing sublime experience and reflecting back on it. That's at least how um, I, I choose to interpret that. An allusion, I think, to a potential religious topos at the very least. So it is. Um, uh, it comes to a satisfying but downplayed end. Um, we've had all the excitement, we've had the storm, we've had the sublime at the top of the mountain. At the end, it fades into night.
0: Oh, I love it. Well, anyone in Melbourne or if you want to fly in for it can come down to Hamer Hall Arts Centre Melbourne, March 2nd and 3rd, Thursday, Friday. You can experience this for yourself in all its glory by Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. It's going to be epic as it always is. You've just been hearing from Dr. David Larkin, musicologist at Sydney Conservatorium. Thank you so much, David, for chatting with us about Richard Strauss's An Alpine Symphony. It's been so inspiring and exciting to hear your thoughts and giving us all the backstory about it. Thank you so much for giving us your expertise today.
1: Thank you so much, Amy. Always happy to talk about Strauss. Let's do it again.
0: I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.